0: Hi, I'm Kathy with a K.
1: And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Before we get started on today's episode, we just wanted to make a quick comment that this episode is first airing on March 1st, which is our six-month mark of doing our podcast. Yay! Yay! We just wanted to thank all of you for listening, for supporting, for laughing with us. Exactly. Sometimes maybe crying with us? No. 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 <laughs> And we're going to have a uh, Killer Destinations by the Numbers post on Instagram and Facebook on Tuesday when this comes out. We're recording this a couple of days ahead of time. But just really quickly, I wanted to note a couple of numbers that we're so proud of. In the past six months, we have reached almost 1,000 followers on Instagram. Yay! We have 12,000 downloads of our episodes. Yay! We- <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell Kathy was a cheerleader exactly. in high school? <laughs>
0: I was definitely not on a pep squad.
1: Our podcast is heard in 47 countries.
0: Now that's pretty cool.
1: And more than 1,100 cities. Mm -hmm. We always said that we would give this 12 months and kind of check in at that point to make sure we were still having fun. And we're clearly
0: still having fun because here we are at 1 a.m. recording.
1: (laughs) And let's talk about whose fault that was. (laughs) Mine. (laughs) So thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you very much. And on to
0: today's destination. Today's destination is Chicago, Illinois. Chicago is the third largest city in the United States, and today 2.7 million residents call it home. It was established as a water transit hub in 1830 but quickly evolved into an industrial metropolis. In October 1871, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed one-third of the city and left more than 100,000 residents homeless. Its initial spark remains unknown, legends of Mrs. O'Leary's lantern-kicking cow notwithstanding, but the city recovered with astonishing speed. The boom of new construction revitalized the city's economy and completely transformed the Chicago skyline with the world's first skyscraper constructed in 1885. The Windy City now enjoys an iconic skyline with modern urban architecture blending beautifully with historical buildings from Chicago's early days. But in 1946, the city of Chicago watched in stunned horror as police raced against time to find a young kidnap victim. James and Helen Degnan lived in the lakefront community of Edgewater,
1: a suburb on the north side of the city of Chicago, with their two daughters, 10-year-old Elizabeth, who went by Betty, and 6-year-old Suzanne. They lived on North Kenmore in a first-floor apartment of a residence built in 1904 ...that had originally been one of Chicago's storied mansions.
0: Kath, this was actually built for William Murphy, the guy who created the Murphy bed. Oh, no way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, he must have made a fortune from that. It was a beautiful home.
1: The street the Degnans lived on once had a large number of mansions, and like many of the mansions, the home had been subdivided into rental units. The owner of the home was an attorney whose family lived on the second and third floors. On the morning of Monday, January 7th, 1946, Mr. and Mrs. Degnan awoke, knowing it was Betty and Suzanne's first day back at school after Christmas vacation. In a documentary called Serial Killer, The Lipstick Killer, Betty remembered her mother going in to wake up her sister Suzanne and screaming. Suzanne was not in her bed, and her window was wide open. According to an article in the Chicago Tribune dated January 13th, 1946, written by journalist Edwin Kennedy, Mr. Degnan had raised the window in Suzanne's bedroom three inches the night before, but now the window was wide open. It was 7 a.m., and the police were called immediately.
0: When police arrived and searched the home, they found a ransom note in Suzanne's room on a piece of dirty, oily paper. It said, Get $20,000 ready and wait for word. Do not notify FBI or police. Bills in fives and tens. On the back of the note, it said, burn this for her safety. Now, there are obvious misspellings in this note. The word safety is misspelled. Ready is misspelled. Wait is misspelled. The police also found a ladder behind the residence. Suzanne's window was about seven and a half feet off the ground and, Kath, that sounds high, but it looked as though there was a basement with garden apartment windows.
1: Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. It elevated it more than it usually
0: would. Exactly. The day prior, Mr. Degnan had thrown away their Christmas tree but said he had not seen a ladder behind the house at the time.
1: So clearly he doesn't engage in
0: tree burning. Tree burning. Exactly.
1: So in some people's houses, not either of ours, but somebody I might be related to— <laughs> They Your are known. sister.
0: <laughs> they are known for their tree burnings. Yes, yes. They have massive, massive bonfires with old Christmas trees to the point where the fire department have responded multiple times. And a very funny story. One time they showed up and they were so irritated. And so I played a joke on Kathy with a K. And I walked over and I'm like, "Oh, hey, Kath, the firemen are thirsty. They would like a beer." And <laughs> And, and I, I sent her over to them, and unbeknownst to her, they weren't thirsty and wanted a beer. They <laughs> well, were, they could have been. They, but were, they were on at work. the job, and they were annoyed because they had been to this property many times. And Kathy walks up and goes, "Hey, what can I get you? Who'd like a beer?" <laughs> and they looked at her like she'd just fallen out of a tree, and they're like, "No thanks." <laughs> I was being a good hostess, where I just like sat in the corner and laughed my butt off. <laughs> but
1: wasn't there also a time when one of the firemen was somebody you'd gone to grade school with? Yes, and yes. he was like. This Kathy with a seaman, she has been trouble from the yeah, beginning.
0: Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Okay. On that same day, police interviewed the Degnans and their neighbors. Mr. Degnan told police that Suzanne had gone to bed the night before, shortly after eating a lettuce and tomato sandwich at 9 p.m. That's I mean, horrible. Maybe they ate those in the 1940s. It sounds like something they would, though, right? Exactly. As was his custom, he got her out of bed at around midnight to go to the bathroom. Then he went back to bed. Mrs. Degnan informed the police that sometime after 1 a.m., she thought she heard moaning or a soft cry coming from one of her daughter's rooms. She went into the hallway and listened at both of their bedroom doors, but when she heard nothing further, she went back to bed. She did not look in either of their rooms. But she did note the fact that she heard two dogs barking at that time. Mr. Degnan reported that approximately 1.30 in the morning, he heard his daughter say, I'm too sleepy, I don't want to get up. He simply thought his daughter was talking to herself and he paid no attention. The third floor occupants heard their dogs barking between 1.30 and 2 in the morning and they went down to the second floor to quiet them, but they did not hear anything else. The police also found a witness who saw a man and a woman transferring a bundle from the front seat to the back seat of their vehicle near the Degnan home at about 2.30 in the morning. The milkman also reported seeing an automobile with a ladder on its roof at the Degnan home at 8 a.m. Saturday morning and 6 a.m. Sunday morning prior to the Monday morning kidnapping. During the first day Suzanne went missing, the Degnans received several ransom calls demanding money but without giving specific instructions.
1: The events of that evening rocked Chicago to its core. Acting on an anonymous tip, the police began searching nearby sewers. Suzanne Degnan's severed head was found in a sewer at the intersection of Kenmore and Thorndale near her home. Her right leg, torso, and left leg were found in three different sewers around her neighborhood.
0: So, Kath, the photos that I saw online showed sewer manholes, like manhole covers, and what it looked like was, imagine picking up one of those round manhole covers and seeing severed limbs. That's what it looked like. But it didn't look deep. It looked almost like there was a- um, Screen or something? Some kind of screen or catch or something. So if I'm thinking sewer, I'm thinking I throw these things in and they're going to get whisked away to the ocean. But that was not the case here. They literally lifted the manhole cover and saw the body parts.
1: Well, if I know sewers, and I think I do.
0: That's where your mind lives. Yes, exactly. Okay, don't confuse me with you. I'm sorry. Sorry. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) But they aren't actually that deep from the manhole cover down to where the sewer begins. So it makes sense if they had some sort of catch basin or something like that there. It really would be like seven, eight feet down. What do you mean? Well, like you said it wasn't very deep, but I was just trying to say it's not like the sewer, the manholes go down like 25 feet.
0: Oh no, I know, but you, like but the body parts they were like a foot from the top, oh, 2 ooh. feet from the pro- like it was oh, yes, I didn't see was, that? Yeah, no. It was oddly Near. close to the top, yes, of of the cover.
1: The Degnan family was devastated as was the public. What began as a kidnapping had become a gruesome murder. According to the documentary we mentioned previously, The Degnan's parish priest had to tell 10-year-old Betty about her sister's death because her parents could not bring themselves to do it. The next day, police discovered that 6-year-old Suzanne's body had been dismembered in the basement of a nearby apartment building located at Winthrop Avenue, which was literally a three-minute walk from the Degnan residence. The basement at that apartment building was used by the residents for laundry. There was blood and bits of flesh found in four large stainless steel laundry sinks and on the floor. There was also a locker in the basement belonging to a 45-year-old resident that had been broken into. Two bags, which appeared to have once contained parts of Suzanne's body, were found in the locker. The press dubbed the basement the murder room. A tenant who lived on the first floor of the apartment building, where Suzanne was dismembered, told investigators that she had heard water running in the basement and heard a man's footsteps make three trips from the alley to the basement and back to the alley. She estimated the time was between 3 and 4 a.m. Another tenant on the first floor heard noises in the basement and running water, and she estimated the time was 2 to 2.45 a.m. Hector Verberg, a janitor at the apartment building, actually lived across the street from the Degnans. He reported that he had a key to the basement, as did all of the tenants. He said on several occasions he found the basement door open, and when he first went into the building on the morning Suzanne had been kidnapped, He
0: said the basement door was open then as well. It's hard to imagine the terror that this abduction and murder had on the minds of parents and especially children at the time. So, Kath, when I told my mom I was doing a true crime podcast and after I tried unsuccessfully multiple times to explain what a podcast was. And how you listen to it. Exactly. (laughs) And how it's not on the radio. And you can't watch it on the computer. (laughs) Anyway, she said I should do the Suzanne Degnan story. So she suggested this to us six months ago. Right. She was telling me that when this happened—so both of my parents are from Chicago, as you know, and my dad actually remembers this happening as well, and my mom was eight at the time. And she said it was all anybody would talk about. And she was a kid in grammar school, and she and her friends— Talked about it at school and I asked her, like, how'd you find out? Did your parents tell you about it? And she said everybody was terrified, so it was discussed, but she read it in the newspapers.
1: Of course your mom did. Yeah. She's a smarty.
0: I was like, You were eight and reading the newspaper. And she goes, Everyone read the newspapers, like specifically to find information about this.
1: It was TikTok for the forties
0: generation. It totally was. It totally was. But she, yeah, she'd be like, oh, you should do Suzanne Degman, Kathy.
1: (laughs) Her mom doesn't actually sound like that, just in case you're wondering.
0: (laughs) I had a friend in high school, Laura, who do this total impression of my mom. She'd be like, Kathy, telephone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Anyway, this was one of the most publicized murders in Chicago's history. And at the time, there were five major newspapers circulating in Chicago with the Tribune competing hard to keep their... Top dog position. It was a time of national unity because World War II had just ended. It was a frigid Chicago winter, and the meat packers were on strike. People were home. It was the perfect time to increase newspaper circulation and get new readers. The story was front-page news for weeks, literally weeks, and it was nationwide. The Los Angeles Examiner had a headline two days after the murder entitled, Kidnapped Girl 6, Lynch Mob Gathers in Chicago. The public was terrified, and police were under massive pressure to find the murderer. So, Kath, when I was doing research on newspaper archives, it was incredible. Like... The mistruths that were out there? Well, there were a lot of mistruths out there, I have to say. But just the number of... Um, Like the sheer number of newspapers? And states that were reporting it. It was literally a nationwide story. Wow. Like front page in New York, in Kansas, in L.A., I mean, for weeks.
1: But, you know, one other one that you saw, because I had seen you write that down,
0: it was a little
1: local newspaper for the Best Lake, and it was their county newspaper, and you cited that, which
0: shocked me. Yes, yes. It was incredible. The coverage was insane. According to Cook County Coroner Alexander Brody, who, by the way, was elected and not medical.
1: (laughs) Because he was a coroner. Right. I actually read about this afterward because we do talk a lot about coroners versus medical examiners. Right. 1976 is when Chicago stopped the practice of having elected coroners, and they now have appointed medical doctors who are forensic pathologists.
0: Oh, that's good. So anyway, according to the coroner, Alexander Brody, someone had attempted to rape Suzanne. Toxicologist Dr. William McNally stated that Suzanne had been strangled before her body was expertly dissected with a sharp knife. This conclusion was corroborated by the coroner, who told the press, quote, It was a very clean job with absolutely no signs of hacking, as would be evident if a dull tool was used, unquote. Dr. Jerry Kearns, a pathologist in the coroner's office, stated at the time that the killer had to be an expert. Not even the average doctor could be so skillful. The arms bore additional evidence of the skill with which the dismemberment of her body was accomplished. Dr. McNally also set Suzanne's time of death as occurring between 12.30 and 1.30 in the morning based upon examination of her stomach contents and the partially digested sandwich that her father told police he had given her at 9 o'clock the night before. Medical experts with the coroner's office estimated that Suzanne had been murdered at least two hours prior to her dismemberment.
1: According to the Edgewater Historical Society, Suzanne Degnan's funeral was held on January 11th, which was four days after her murder, at St. Gertrude's Catholic Church. An estimated 1,300 family, friends, and members of the community were in attendance to mourn the loss of the little girl. Approximately five weeks later, on February 16th, an electrician found both of Suzanne's arms in a city sewer on Hollywood Street.
0: Those are the only two body parts that were together.
1: And it was after she had already been buried. Yes,
0: well after her funeral. Did you
1: read anything about whether or not they were able to bury her with her
0: arms? No, and I actually specifically looked it up because I was really curious. I didn't see anything anywhere. I saw everybody mentioned that it was well after she had been buried, but nobody really told us what happened. I I don't know if she had to be reinterred. I don't know.
1: There were two fingerprints found on the windowsill of Suzanne's bedroom. The police originally thought they were an important clue, but later determined they belonged to the maid who cleaned the room. Months later, it was announced that there were two fingerprints found on the front of the ransom note that we had referred to earlier. The letter that police had seen propped up against the house was identified as having been stolen two weeks previously from the home of Mrs. Perry, who operated a boarding house on Winthrop, the same street where the apartment building was where Suzanne had been dismembered. Mrs. Perry's son, Francis Cyril, was recently discharged from the Army. He had been arrested when he was 16, for annoying an eight-year-old girl. He was questioned by police and later released.
0: Now, Kath, I read about that in a newspaper. They They use the word annoying, but it probably means molesting.
1: Oh. You know,
0: frankly, molesting out of the law could also mean excessively bothering somebody, but it could also mean sexual abuse. So they don't say specifically. Police looked into the possibility that the killer could have been a meatpacker. At the time, Mr. Degnan was a senior executive at the Office of Price Administration and had been recently transferred to Chicago. So, of course, I had to look that up. I'd never heard of that. Right. Yeah, and the OPA was a federal agency that had been established in 1941 to control prices and rents after the outbreak of World War II. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, it had a very short lifespan. Like it was like 1941 and 1947 or something like that. And I'm sure it's just with all the rationing. They, well, what did they do? They set controls on prices for things like tires, cars, nylon, shoes, sugar, meat, coffee, all that stuff. Was that done to ration the items in a way because not everybody could afford them? No, I think it was actually done because with a shortage of items, people were being gouged. Apparently at its peak during the war, almost 90% of retail food prices had been frozen. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. In late 1945, executives at the Office of Price Administration had begun discussions about extending rationing to dairy products, which outraged the dairy industry. Another executive at the OPA had been recently assigned armed guards after receiving death threats against his children. So around the same time, there was a man who was involved in the black market of meat, and he had recently been murdered and they think it was by the meat packers.
1: The other thing, too, though, is, I mean, back in this era, unions were huge. Oh, yeah. And I think the mob probably had
0: something to do with some of these industries. We like to take poetic license with the mob. So I would have to say I would have to say yes to that. But I I just can see how that was super dangerous. Yeah. At this time, there was a nationwide meatpacking strike and meatpackers were mad because of price ceilings. They wanted to make money. And they were union guys. And so anyway, so what they did was like, oh, you want price ceilings, huh? And so they worked really, really slow. Lee. They created a shortage, which drove the prices up through the roof because everyone's getting meat on the black market. It's a good strategy. A- anyway, it was it was a good strategy. It was actually one of the strategies that took down the OPA. Oh. But so they thought someone involved in the meatpacking industry perhaps did not like Mr. Degnan, and this was the way they were going to show it. Over the course of the investigation, the newspapers declared the case solved numerous times because police kept bringing in suspects and questioning them and releasing them. And, in fact, I read in one newspaper that the police gave polygraphs to over 170 people.
1: So did you also read in 1946? I mean, I know polygraphs can't be admitted in court
0: now, could they back then? Probably not. I don't know. I don't think so. Seems
1: like a massive waste of time.
0: If somebody doesn't want to take a poly, the Chicago cops are going to think they're crooked and just beat them into a confession. Oh, that's so, true. was Chicago So, so maybe not a total waste of time, you know? <laughs> Fear tactics are always good policing. Yeah. So the first suspect they had, which, of course, the press touted as being Suzanne's killer— was Hector Verberg, the 65-year-old Belgian-American janitor who lived across from the Degnans and worked in the building where her body was dismembered. So the police even told the press, this is the man, despite discrepancies between his abilities and the profile that the police had developed. For example, surgical knowledge. But because the ransom note was dirty, they thought the janitor could be the suspect. Nice. I know. And again, the newspapers reported that the murder was solved. The elderly man was repeatedly beaten under police questioning for 48 hours, suffering injuries, including a separated shoulder, but he never confessed. And he wound up spending 10 days in the hospital. Verberg's janitor's union lawyer got him released on a writ of habeas corpus it was determined that Verberg could not write English well enough to have written the ransom note, even by the crude standards of the note itself. So referring to all of the
1: typos and misspelled words.
0: Exactly, exactly. He wound up suing the Chicago Police Department and was awarded $20,000.
1: How much was that in 22?
0: I know, you did the math, you love doing the math. (laughs) So it's $241,000 in 2022 dollars. 5000 of that actually was awarded to his wife, because the police tried to pressure her into implicating her husband in the murder. Nice. I know. So additional suspects were considered, but ultimately let go because police could not prove connections. They were also able to eliminate two teenagers who had made prank phone calls, the ransom phone calls, to the Degnan's home on the day Suzanne went missing. One confessed to her murder, but was released after a lie detector showed he had no knowledge of the crime. So I'm always tripped out by people who confess to murders.
1: Yeah, who try and insert themselves into something like that. It's
0: it's it's bizarre. Also, there was a man in Arizona who was jailed for molesting his 12-year-old daughter. Oh, my gosh, what was his name? Thomas. Richard Thomas. And he confessed to Suzanne's murder, but he later admitted he made up the whole story because he was ashamed of his conviction and he wanted to get the electric chair. He wanted to be put to death. But he insisted that he wrote the note for the actual killer. But police disregarded this claim because a better suspect came into view. Why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food.
1: What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20 minute video explaining step by step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health.
0: And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie, and even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell.
1: I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown.
0: Or crazy. A little bit. (laughs) So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash Killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash Killer D.
1: Police were under incredible pressure from the public to find Suzanne's killer. Five months after her death, police caught a break. On June 26, 1946, a 17-year-old student at the University of Chicago named William Hirons was caught trying to break into an apartment. Police captured Hirons during the attempted burglary not far from the Degnan home. According to the documentary we've referenced previously, Hirons brandished his gun and was shot at three times, but not hit. Can we insert a comma here about, you know, gun skills of the Chicago police? (laughs) (laughs) He was fighting a police officer when another officer came up behind him and hit him on the head with three flower pots, causing him to lose consciousness.
0: Okay, Kath, when I read that, and I read it numerous times, because I'm like, three flower pots? But yes, it was three flower pots. Sounds excessive. yeah, so Hirens was about six feet one eighty five. He was right. a pretty big guy. So this cop comes up and he grabbed three flower pots. But it totally reminded me of those like old school cartoons where somebody drops like a flower pot from a six floor window and it hits like Wiley e. Coyote in the head or whatever. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> but I was like, you know, oh, I don't know. I just thought it was so funny.
1: Well, and you know, talking about how big he was, like that's normal for now. But in nineteen forty six. He must have been a giant. And he was only 17. Right. Yeah. Hirons was taken to the hospital for a suspected skull fracture, which I don't think Wiley Coyote ever had those, but I think a human would probably get that. Right, right. Three flower pots. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) According to court records, Hirons remained in the hospital for five days. On the day of his arrest, police searched his living quarters at the University of Chicago and recovered a number of stolen items. During the following two days... Hirons was questioned in the hospital by police and the state's attorney, and he was subjected to questioning all night of the second day. Hirons failed to respond coherently and behaved in an irrational manner throughout the interrogation. Can we say skull fracture?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: On the third day, the state's attorney, William Toohey, directed a psychiatrist to administer sodium pentothal. No permission was obtained from Hirons or his parents. Remember, he's 17. While Hirons was under the influence of this drug, he was asked about specific crimes, particularly the murder of Suzanne Degnan on January 7th. He readily spoke about burglaries, the Degnan murder and other crimes, attributing them to someone named George, who appeared to be an alter ego. According to Hirons' statements under sodium pentothal, George was responsible for searching out places to burglarize and Hirons was constantly trying to prevent him from committing the acts.
0: Throughout the examination, the state's attorney, the police commissioner, and a stenographer were present behind screens. The stenographer took notes during the questioning. After Hirons regained an awareness of his surroundings, he sat up in bed and said, What did I say? What did I say? To which the first assistant state's attorney replied, Why, you said all the things that I think we have to know. (laughs) That's actually what he sounded like. Yeah, why... (laughs) Anyway, the examining doctor opined that Hirons was a disassociated psychotic schizophrenic, also known as a split personality. After the sodium pentothal interview, Hirons was again questioned all night with no parents and no attorney. The next day, he was taken to the police station where he was given a polygraph without his or his parents' consent. He did not answer the questions, but merely repeated each one as it was asked. Do you think he thought he was being funny? Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Like maybe, who knows? Maybe he wasn't intimidated. I don't know. He was also asked to print out the text of the ransom note involved in the Degnan murder. The next day, he was told that a handwriting expert found the note matched his own and that Hirons had misspelled the same words. It was right around this time that the police made an announcement that his fingerprints, like his pinky print, matched one of the prints on the front of the ransom note, and that his palm matched the palm print on the back of it. After his release from the hospital, Hirons was placed in a jail cell. In July of 1946, he obtained a well-known attorney, John Coughlin, who was also assisted by three other lawyers, and I believe one of the other lawyers was John's brother. He had not yet been charged with any murder, but his arraignment on multiple burglary charges was set for Tuesday, July 16th. Almost three weeks after Hirons' arrest and three days before his burglary arraignment, on July 13th, 1946, an article in the Chicago Daily Tribune stated that Sergeant Thomas Laffey, a police fingerprint expert, linked 29 points of interest between a fingerprint of Hirons' And a fingerprint found on the door jamb of murder victim Francis Brown. The article also stated that police noted similarities in the murder of Josephine Ross, causing police to further investigate connections to Hirons.
1: Josephine Ross was murdered during a burglary on June 5, 1945, six months prior to Suzanne's murder. 43-year-old Josephine Ross was found in her apartment on the same street where the Degnans lived. Her body lay in bed as though it were posed. Investigators found that she had been repeatedly stabbed, including a stab in the throat, but her body had been washed and all of her wounds had been covered with tape. Her head was then wrapped with a skirt. Although her body had been washed, investigators still found dark hairs clutched in her hand, presumably from her killer. Police assumed she surprised an intruder and was killed as a result, but nothing had been taken from her apartment. And because of the hairs, the killer was presumed to be a man with a dark complexion. On December 10th of 1945, about one month before Suzanne's murder, Frances Brown's nude body was found draped over the edge of her bathtub with an 8-inch bread knife in her neck. And Kath, it wasn't just in her neck. It was through her neck, wasn't it? it
0: was, yeah, all the way through. She
1: had been shot in the head and the arm, and towels were wrapped around her head as though to slow the blood flow. It appeared that her body may have been washed. Prints were wiped from all surfaces, but there was one bloody print reportedly found on the door jamb to her bathroom. Nothing appeared to have been taken from her apartment. Scrawled on Ms. Brown's wall in bright red lipstick was the message, quote, For heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control
0: myself. End quote. On July 16, 1946, so this is the same day that Hirons is arraigned for his burglary charges, the Chicago Daily Tribune ran a headline that said, How Hirons Slew Three. In the article by George Wright, quote, unimpeachable sources, unquote, were cited in support of a very lengthy article detailing the murders of Suzanne Degnan, Francis Brown. And Josephine Ross. Lurid details in the article were not known before regarding how the victims' lives intersected with Hirons and the movements of Hirons leading up to the killings. Kath, I pulled the article and I read it, and it was long and it was detailed, and it talked about how he had gone to the movies on the South Side with a friend and his girlfriend. They had gone home at about midnight, and then he supposedly takes the L. And he gets off near the Degnan's residence, like the closest exit to the Degnan's residence, which I think is called Thornburn, but I can't quite remember. Anyway, they talked about how he had a hunting knife with him, all these very specific details. They talked about how he had seen Suzanne Degnan previous to this and how he had burgled a nearby home, all of these things. And this article did the same thing with the two other victims as well. linking hirons to them. correct. Quite lengthy, quite detailed. And quite fictional. Exactly. The article was picked up by four other newspapers and a nationwide news service. So this became nationwide news, and it was a total fabrication.
1: So this became the narrative. Oh, yeah. Everybody believed that this was exactly what had happened.
0: Yeah. So after the publication of the article, Hirons lawyers pressured him to take a plea deal. They told him that he would die in the electric chair within weeks if he were convicted. They knew he could not get a fair trial, and up to this point, except for claiming under sodium pentothal that his alter ego had done the murders, Hirons had denied murdering anyone despite the pressure of the police. Both Hirons and his parents signed a confession with the state's attorney, William Toohey, using the fake July 16, 1945 article as the basis for many of the facts— Hirons and his attorneys appeared in court on July 30th, 1946, for a plea bargain in exchange for a single life sentence to all three murders. But when he was brought to court to plead guilty, he instead defied authorities and surprised everybody by insisting he was innocent. Well, of course, the state's attorney was furious. Oh, yeah. And he basically said, you know what? The single life sentence is off the table. Now, the only deal is going to be three life sentences to be run consecutively. And if you recant again, you're going to the electric chair. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, his parents pressured him. His attorneys pressured him. And he finally agreed to a confession as part of a plea deal because he was terrified he was not going to get a fair trial. Well, it doesn't
1: sound like he was going to.
0: No. It's so hard to communicate the overwhelming barrage of articles about Suzanne Degnan in particular. There were hundreds, hundreds of articles about her murder. And people were bloodthirsty and the media was pressuring the police. It was... Well, I
1: also read that in the six-month period, 147 days had a front-page headline Mm -hmm. about the Suzanne Degnan murder. And then as it got a little bit further in, it was about Hirons culpability in that murder. Right.
0: Everybody wanted to catch the person who did this. Right. They wanted to see justice for Suzanne. Correct. So on August 6, 1946, Hirons confessed and was escorted by police and reporters to the Degnan residence where he reenacted entering Suzanne's window. He also reenacted the dismemberment in the basement but he could not remember how he cut her body or disposed of its pieces in sewers. Hirons was then taken back to his cell. One thing real quick, Kath, that's another thing. Like, the police and the press at the time were super chummy. And so even though that article was fake, I have no idea if the journalist just made it up out of whole cloth or somebody from, quote-unquote, the inside, like a police officer or somebody fed him fake information. I don't know. To get the public on their side. Yeah, but even with the finding of Suzanne's body parts and, and the searching of the homes, it was shocking to me how the press were invited in on all this. So you would see a police detective standing over a manhole, like looking down into it. I had seen a documentary on this, and some of these things were recreated for the press specifically. But it was a very chummy relationship, let's put it that way. Nine months after Suzanne was murdered, on September 4, 1946, with Hirons' parents and the victim's families attending, Hirons admitted his guilt to 26 burglaries and three murder charges. That night, Hirons tried to hang himself in his cell. The next day, the judge formally sentenced him to three life terms without his attorneys presenting any evidence of mitigation on his behalf. That's crazy. Yeah. So the state, they basically made statements to the court and they presented aggravating evidence. When it became his turn to provide mitigating circumstances, zero. He offered nothing. And just a side note, what's interesting about Hirons is he had been in trouble with the law since like just after eighth grade. I think after eighth grade, it was his first burglary arrest And I think he spent a short time in juvenile hall and then went to an all-boys Catholic school where he thrived. Well, he was a smart kid. Yes. And in this documentary, he said he was a compulsive thief when he was young. So he was constantly stealing things from people. One of the things he said is, like, if I had a date and I needed money, I would just go check apartment doors. And if there was one open, I'd go in and look for money. I mean, so whatever. He said he was a compulsive thief. And so he did get arrested a number of times, and one of his arrests was actually he had a handgun. And so it's not like he was this perfect child, but he he had a really high IQ. And one of the things, when he was arrested, his mother did not realize that he was going to be questioned for any murders. And so a reporter called her to interview her saying, oh, I heard your son was arrested for burglary. And so she was like, yes, I really, I was hoping that the monks were going to, you know, straighten him out. And he seemed to do so well. And he's, she said his IQ, I cannot remember the number she said, because I have a low IQ. (laughs) 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 But it was like really outrageously high. And so he was smart, finished high school in three years, like you said, entered, you know, University of Chicago as a sophomore. Had no problem whatsoever academically, but he was a compulsive thief. Hirons ultimately had a ton of appeals, kind of reiterating the same grounds, but just different ways. And I'm not going to get into it. I will tell you, though, in 1952, he wanted a new trial. So he filed a, a petition for a new trial, and there was a hearing, and he was alleging a bunch of constitutional violations. And they, the judge is like, nope, it's fine. You're not getting a new trial. So he appealed to the Supreme Court of Illinois. He basically said a couple things. He said, hey, my attorneys were not doing their job. They were in cahoots with the state, and they should have been looking out for my best interests. And, hey, there was an insanity defense that they were ignoring. He basically was saying, this is what they knew. They should have tried to defend me on a sanity charge rather than— Colluding rather than with the prosecutors plead. to make sure he got yeah. put in jail. Yeah, and, and they, he was also saying— the circumstances of my confession were so tainted by the multiple violations of my constitutional rights that it basically took away my voluntary choice to make this confession. So the Supreme Court says they did a warrantless search of his dormitory. So they said the search of the living quarters. The incessant and prolonged questioning while he was confined to a hospital bed. And suffering from a skull fracture. Yes. The unauthorized use of sodium pentothal and a lie detector were flagrant violations of his rights. Such conduct on the part of law enforcement officials deserves the severest condemnation, especially in view of his age and emotional stability. Anyway, the court said, however... All of this illegal law enforcement nonsense. Yes, all these violations. Yes, yes, yes. But you know what? These guilty pleas were made a month after the occurrence of these unconstitutional acts. And therefore, there was no substantial connection between the conduct of the police and the state's attorney and your plea of guilty. Wow. Yeah. And they, they pointed out that the judge explained a guilty plea and what it might do and yada, yada, yada. And he's like, yep, 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 yep. Anyway, this is what made me angrier, I think, than all of it. Okay, so at the hearing where he was sentenced, the state prosecutor says, quote, without the aid of defense counsel, the state would not have found a solution to the murders of Francis Brown and Josephine Ross. The defense arranged for hirons to confess to these killings along with the kidnap killing of six-year-old Suzanne Degnan in order to escape the death penalty. They also induced Hirons to plead guilty to 26 lesser crimes. Okay, so then the prosecutor telling the judge this. Why did the judge allow this to go on? I don't... Honestly, it's probably because nobody wanted to be the person to, to... To not have the killer of Suzanne Degnan. Correct. Hirons defense attorney, John Coughlin, was a noteworthy guy and had a pretty good reputation... But after this, he was highly criticized in the newspapers by some defense attorneys because what he does is he addresses the court and he says, now this is at the sentencing, quote, the defense was compelled to take the course it did. He said, when it became plain, the state had a case against Hirons. We could not help the defendant defeat justice and urged him to confess. Then he told the judge, quote, it would be unjust and unfair to forfeit the boy's life, and also unfair to return him to society. Anyway, the Supreme Court of Illinois basically said, "Hey, look, just because your attorney advised you to accept a guilty plea does not mean you had inadequate representation." What about the rest of it? What do you mean? Oh, well, oh, oh, like he, he colluding with the with the uh, prosecutor? Well, yeah, they just dismissed it. And actually, the, what I just read to you was simply a piece of what was in the appellate opinion. They actually quote the state's attorney and the defense attorney at greater length than I did. But basically, they have to find out, are you willingly admitting guilt and entering this plea? And do you understand that if you enter a plea, the the ramifications, you know, the sentencing, et cetera, et cetera. So the Supreme Court was like, sorry, this just because he's recommending this doesn't mean he wasn't doing his job.
1: Since Hiran's sentencing... Many have questioned the justice of the situation because nobody appeared to have questioned the evidence at the time. According to Hirons, with the false article that ran in the paper on July 16, 1946, he was convinced he would never get a fair trial and he would get the electric chair. Mary Jane Blanchard, daughter of murder victim Josephine Ross, was one of the first to question Hirons' conviction. She said, quote, I cannot believe that young Hirons murdered my mother. He just does not fit into the picture of my mother's death. I have looked at all things Hiram stole, and there was nothing of my mother's things among them. End quote. In the Francis Brown case, a witness heard gunshots about 4 a.m., and the building's night clerk said a nervous man of 35 to 40 years old and weighing 140 pounds got off the elevator and left. At one point, Chicago police had even said that they had reason to believe that Francis Brown's killer was a woman. In 1987, Dolores Kennedy, author of William Hyrens' His Day in Court, began to research the case against Hyrens.
0: So, Kath, Dolores Kennedy was a journalism major, but her father was an attorney. I think she may have worked in his firm. Anyway, one day he tells her, "Hey, I would like you to meet William Hyrens. He's serving time in prison. I believe he's innocent. I'm going to look into his case. I'm going to Write an appeal for him. She was in the documentary The Lipstick Killer, and she said it was the first and last time that her father ever asked her to meet somebody that he was going to be representing. And so he wound up dying before she went to meet William Hiron. So what happens is time goes by. I want to say a couple years goes by, and she remembered that her dad wanted her to meet this guy. So she thought, you know what, I'm going to go meet him. I'm going to see. She winds up meeting him and writing this book and becoming so convinced of his innocence that she hired people to help her. Just, wow. just look into it. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting story.
1: Well, and in 1994, so seven years later, she actually formed a justice team headed by Judd Stone, who was a Chicago criminal defense lawyer, and they assembled psychiatrists, lawyers, handwriting analysts, fingerprint experts, professors, and concerned citizens.
0: According to Justicedenied.org, the experts found the following. The handwriting comparison on the ransom note at Suzanne's home, as well as the lipstick writing on Francis Brown's wall, did not match Hirons. Among evidence suggesting Hirons' guilt was the fingerprint evidence on the Degnan ransom note and the door jam of Francis Brown's bathroom. However, suspicions on the veracity of the jam fingerprints found at the Brown crime scene have arisen. So one of the things, Kath, in the documentary that I watched is that the Chicago criminal defense attorney, Jed Stone, said that never in his entire career has he seen a fingerprint where the sides of the finger are also evident on the print. He said, this looks like a rolled fingerprint, much the same way you do when you have your fingerprints taken at a police station.
1: So and- I don't know how that is, Kath. When you've had it done, is it right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> he said both side margins of the fingerprint were included on the door jam, And he said, N- that just does not happen. And he said originally the Chicago Crime Detection Lab could not find any usable prints on the note. So there was a captain in the police department, Captain Timothy O'Connor, and he took the note to the FBI crime lab in Washington, D.C. So literally he flies the note to Washington, D.C. about a week after Suzanne was murdered with the idea of enlisting the FBI in, you know, searching for fingerprints because their technology was more sophisticated. So what happens is the FBI were able to raise two prints, which they photographed, because unlike modern technique, when they did fuming prints back then, revealed by the iodine process, whatever that is, the fingerprints faded quickly. So what they would do is they'd get the fingerprints, and then they'd quickly photograph them so they were preserved in perpetuity, so to speak, and then the, the prints would fade, so they gave Captain O'Connor photographs of the prints and the note, and he took it back to Chicago. And then he gave it to Sergeant Laffey, who was the Chicago Police Department's fingerprint expert, and he basically was quoted in the press as saying, they were so incomplete that it was impossible to classify them. He also said he did his best. He took the incomplete prints and compared them with everyone arrested between January, the month that Suzanne was murdered, and June 29, 1946, but he was unable to find a match. However, William Hirons had been arrested in May on a weapons charge, and he had been printed then. So basically, Laffey had Hirons prints and presumably compared them, and they, you know... Didn't find a match. if If what he's telling the press is true he couldn't find a match. However, three days after Hirons gets arrested on June 26 for the burglary, Sergeant Laffey announced a nine-point comparison match to Hirons' left little finger with one of the prints. That was a print on the front page of the ransom note. So then months later, okay, months after the FBI returned the note and the photograph, the police announced that Sergeant Laffey had discovered a palm print on the reverse side of the note, also matching Hiran's. So they basically found 10 points of comparison. So remember suspect Richard Thomas? In Arizona? Yes, ma'am.
1: This is the one who had uh, been arrested for, I was going to say annoying, but he actually did molest his children. Exactly. The justice team discovered that handwriting experts identified Thomas's handwriting as consistent with the author of the ransom note which may be why he claimed he assisted in its writing. Yes, Thomas had also lived in Chicago when Suzanne Degnan was killed. Suzanne's arms were discovered in a sewer directly across from a car agency he was known to hang out at, and he was a male nurse. Mm -hmm. Remember, we've talked about the surgical precision somebody might have needed. Right. He also had molested two of his three children. Mm -hmm. Several years prior to the Degnan crime, Thomas had been arrested for attempted kidnapping and extortion. Portions of the extortion letter have wording similar to that on the ransom note. The key to the 1946 prosecution was Hirons' confession. The justice team compared the known facts of each murder to the versions Hirons had told to save his life. They determined that Hirons was wrong about facts, locations, and events. Soon after Hirons was arrested his parents and younger brother changed their surname to Hill. His parents divorced after his conviction. Hirons was first housed at Statesville Prison in Joliet, Illinois. Before a college education was available to prison inmates, Hirons, on February 6, 1972, so almost 26 years after he'd been sent to prison, became the first prisoner in Illinois history to earn a four-year college degree, receiving a Bachelor of Arts degree and later earning 250 course credits by funding the cost of correspondence courses with 20 different universities from his savings. After he was transferred to Vienna Correctional Center, he set up their entire educational program. He aided other prisoners' educational progress by helping them earn their GEDs.
0: You know, Kath, also he was sort of one of those jailhouse lawyers. He was like a self-taught guy and wrote at least one of his own appeals. But did he help
1: others? Is that why he was called a jailhouse lawyer?
0: Yes, exactly.
1: In 1998, William Hirons was transferred to Dixon Correctional Center, a minimum security prison, which really surprised me, where he died from complications of diabetes in 2012. He was 83 years old and the longest-serving prisoner in Illinois history.
0: Suzanne's surviving sister, Betty, and her brother, Jim and Jim was born 10 months after Suzanne was killed, firmly believe in Hirons' guilt. They have supported the National Organization of Victims of Juvenile Murderers because they suffered so horribly over the long decades since their sister's brutal murder by having to constantly re-engage with Hirons in parole hearing after parole hearing. They have never had a life free of Hirons until his death in 2012. And, Kath, in this documentary, Betty was interviewed, and she firmly, firmly believes in Hirons' guilt. There is no question in her mind. Well,
1: imagine what her life became after that.
0: I can't possibly. Right. I can't even possibly imagine. Jim Degnan was quoted as saying, it's over, and this is after Hirons died. He says... I just never thought this day would come. I was numbed by the previous 29 years of going to parole board hearings.
1: Thank you for listening.
0: Yes, thank you. Oops, shit.
1: She totally shit. meant that from the bottom of her heart.
0: <laughs> it's now 2 a.m. I'm tired.
1: It's one fifty. Come on. Uh, so thank you for listening.
0: And recommend us to a friend.
1: Thank you. <laughs> wait, if
0: you. <laughs> We're so punch drunk at this point.
1: <laughs> but wait, if you are not following us on Instagram or Facebook, please don't forget it's at Killer Destinations Podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts. That's right. We currently have 82 reviews on Apple Podcasts. 81 of them are five stars. Yes. We do have one that is three stars, but. We know who did it, and he has been dealt with appropriately. <laughs> He thought it was funny. He's wrong. Exactly.
0: There was a lot of public shaming involved. (laughs) And continues to this day.
1: One day we might out him and have you guys just go after him on Instagram. (laughs) Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants.